Hey everyone, welcome back to Sophomore Citizens. I'm Gigi. I'm Liesl. And I'm Lily. So somehow it is already the middle of March, which um, is a little bit mind-boggling to me, but with the middle of March comes the lovely March Madness, which I will just shout out that my incredible university, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, made it in. Very proud. We are at the very bottom, but nevertheless, all my love and spirit for the Badgers. And the three of us all made March Madness bracket. So let's talk about that for our check-in for a little bit. Yes. So I have never done a March Madness bracket. I've never really watched much college uh, basketball, um, but obviously always have heard about March Madness, known about the madness, known about the March. Um, But this year, our cousin proposed setting up a little bracket system, and we have a whopping $20 on the line um, for the best bracket out of the three of us. So um, it's very exciting, and I was happy to make my bracket. I enlisted the help of Dr. Um, Duke, uh, our dog, to help me out with some of my selections. So I would go like, Duke, Oklahoma, or Missouri? And then I would wait and see which one he blinked for. And then I would go with his choices. Um, And I'm pretty sure that that's going to work really well for me. Um, I will say I have, I think, once before participated in a March Madness bracket making process. But I don't even know if I like actually saw it through or like checked on how my bracket was doing. Um, And I do just think that the uh, activity of choosing is fun and, you know, hoping, wishing, waiting Mm -hmm. to see how things turn out and making predictions. You know, I think it's funny how people like to poo-poo on um, psychic Uh behavior and people poo-poo on, you know, whatever, astrology and all of that. But this is looking like the heteronormative boy (laughs) version of that. Yeah. Yeah. With money involved. With money involved. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, I will also say I love basketball yeah. and I'm a college student. So yeah. what is there not to love? Yeah, totally. This is true. I am a seasoned March Madness bracket maker. Um, I have done it with my family every year and have really enjoyed it. But that does not mean that I even slightly know how to do it well. Um, typically, my method for picking teams is if you rejected me as a university automatically you're out you will not get my vote if you have nice colors I'm more likely to choose you if I've never heard of you I'm honestly kind of likely to choose you because I feel like those are the ones you're like oh the only reason I've heard of the school is March Madness so I tend to pick schools that I've never heard of but you know it's not that much of a system but I I will I will kind of do that too Lil, I will do a similar thing where if I just see the name and it feels right, I'll choose it. I'll also usually um, give my California schools a little extra love than they probably deserve in the seating or whatever, just because I'm pulling for my for my California schools. Yes, definitely. Um, Well, with that, I think we should get into our topic for this episode, which is all things art related. And so Miss Liesl, I would love for you to kick off this art related episode with your topic. Yes. So for my topic, I want to talk about a piece of art news that has been in the media recently, which was that a piece of artwork, digital art, was recently sold for $69 million, which is now the third highest amount that has been paid for a piece of art by a living artist. Um, And if you're curious about the second and first most expensive artworks sold, the second was a portrait of an artist, a pool with two figures by David Hockney, and that sold for $90 million. And then the number one is Rabbit by Jeff Koons, which is a stainless steel sculpture of a rabbit by famous (laughs) artist Jeff Jeff Koons, um, for $91 million. Wow. Yes. So very interesting that the third highest piece of artwork is a piece of digital artwork, which is also being sold as a non-fungible token, an NFT in the blockchain, which I know sounds like a lot of 
intimidating words. And I don't claim whatsoever to be an expert on cryptocurrency or, or the fungible. blockchain. Fungible. I, yeah. Fungible, fungible or, or non-fungible. Non yeah. 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 But I think I could do my best to try to explain kind of how this works, right? Um, I'm sure you girls have some familiarity with the blockchain, with cryptocurrency, what the whole kind of deal is. But a big thing that the blockchain enables is a um, permanent like digital record of ownership, right? So that's what this non-fungible token is essentially creating is a digital footprint and um, traceable chain of ownership where that is accessible to anyone to see. So it's clear public record of a sale going on in the blockchain that everyone has access to. And what's kind of interesting with art being sold as a non-fungible token is they can essentially like write into the code and into the contract on the blockchain uh, royalties for the artist. So anytime that the art is sold again, the artist could get like put it into their contract that they get a certain amount of royalties. Um, and all of that information is completely public and out there for anyone to access. And so ownership is like very locked in and tight as opposed to like paper, you know, ownership or whatever and art being um, vulnerable to being stolen, which is kind of interesting that mm -hmm. this type of art is not vulnerable to that. But essentially this digital artwork is available for anyone to see on the internet at any point in time. So what's interesting is that someone spent $69 million to own something that everyone and anyone can access at any point, which is kind of the most shocking part. But when you really think about it, what is art ownership to begin with? Why do people want to own really expensive pieces of art? Well, and also like, it's sounding to me that the ownership of this piece is more about the profit that can be made. Right from the royalties or from like this, you know, solidified ownership, then it is about ha like having the piece to be able to look at. Right. So it's like, when we think about traditional art, like a traditional painting, most of which anyone could Google what it looks like and see it on the internet. So everyone has access to be able to look at a certain piece of art or even go to a museum and go and look at it. But the person who owns it gets like prestige, right? Status in society. They get to feel like they're contributing and like funding the arts, which has for a long time been, you know, a super prestigious, like um, high, high class activity. And they feel like they're making an investment. Well, and on top of that, like the enjoyment of art in my personal experience is so much more at the the tangible level yeah. forget fungible I'm talking tangible right like you know being able to see the way that light bounces off and seeing it in the flesh like has so much more power than looking at something on a screen in my in my personal experience yeah um and so you know in addition to all of these things that you've listed in, uh, related to prestige and whatnot like there is um value in being able to see the original piece of art that was created by the artist. Right. But I think that digital art is, is creating a new pathway for art to be consumed and created that is so unlike any other type of art that we've experienced before. Mm -hmm. May I ask what, is this like art that was created using graphic design programs or is it a photo of art? What is exactly is this type of art? Yes. So these are, you know, graphic designed pieces um, and we will get to what specifically this piece of art is. And I really want to talk about that because I also think that that's pretty interesting, but let's just finish the blockchain situation because I was also reading an article that was saying that the $69 million um, sale was a scam and like a marketing stunt basically and that crypto purists say that this this non-fungible token isn't actually a non-fungible token at all because it went through Christie's um, and was sold like in an auction 
the way that the non-fungible token like actually ended up playing out um like crypto purists like don't think that it was actually like had anything to do with cryptocurrency um so it'll be interesting to see if this type of art and this method of selling art and like exchanging art continues and if this continues to be like a super expensive like elite thing or if this was just kind of like a one-off situation where because this is so new and different um people were willing to spend a lot of money on it for now and those people that were willing to spend a lot of money is the person who ultimately ended up purchasing the piece of art is their identity public i think it's obscured okay because something i thought about when you were talking about what it really means to own art and the prestige that comes with it. And yes, it's available for anyone to see, but what it means to be the art owner has value in itself. I'm curious to know what type of person values that because personally I hear this and I'm like, never in my life would I spend, I mean, I don't have $69 million, but a fraction of my version of what I do have of that on art. Like that's just not something that I value in the same way this person does. And so I'm curious to know, well, first of all, if you guys would spend that type of money on this type of thing, but also if the person who is spending $69 million is someone who already has prestige, I mean, clearly they have money, but does that mean that they are a well-known figure or if they are someone seeking that prestige through art ownership? Because I do feel like that's an interesting person that is spending that type of money on digital art yeah definitely well I mean as I was saying earlier like I think that this person is wanting to benefit from this um this form of art ownership with the royalties and whatnot like for me I don't give a rats about owning art in this way like I'm not a businesswoman, you know like to me art would be more valuable at the tangible level like I would not that I have anything even close to that amount of money nor would I spend anything close to that amount of money on art but I would be a lot more likely to spend a hefty chunk of change on a beautiful piece of physical art as opposed to some like the ownership of some digital art that's then being distributed digitally right and all I'm really benefiting from owning it is getting money right um yeah I do agree and I feel like especially when I didn't know what the art piece was and like how exactly it worked I did not see the 69 million dollar value but now I think we can get into what exactly the piece is and I think that you guys will maybe see a little bit more of the value. So the artist is um, known as Beeple. Um, He is a famous digital artist. His real name is Mike Winkleman. And he just honestly like seems like a really regular guy. Like I've seen a couple videos and photos of him. Like he just seems like a very regular like white suburban dad, which is kind of like an interesting um, person to be this like famous artist now. Um, and the piece itself is called Every Days, the First 5,000 Days. So what he did was basically he started making a piece of digital art and putting it online every single day. So I will show you, um, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll get to see the first um, piece that he put out for this. He just decided that he was going to release a piece of digital art every single day and he just started it um in 2007 so think about like he's been doing this for 13 and a half years he's been putting out a piece of art every single day so every day he was sharing these digital art pieces and over time they really progressed into being more thematic um they started out as just kind of like little digital doodles and then they really transitioned into more three-dimensional works and then really intricate and sometimes political pieces of art. This one is Mike Pence with a bunch of giant flies surrounding him, which references, of course, the debate where he had a fly on him and intricate pieces like this that have a lot of detail, meaning and things that maybe we don't uh, understand. Um, But 
when those are all put together, you end up with this grid that um, really shows like a progression over time of all 5,000 of his daily pieces. That's all 5,000? That's all 5,000 in the grid. And you can go online. You know, looking at Christie's, something like that, I just realized I have no concept of numbers. Like, how, like that cannot be 5,000. It's 5,000. Right Gee, there. I am the same. That is not my way of thinking. I could never guess right how many jelly beans in a jelly bean jar in elementary school. I am so bad at things like that. But it's really cool because you you can look at this massive grid of all of these different pieces of art and you can like see in this corner there's like a lot of white and that was towards the beginning when he was just doing like little doodles and over here it becomes so much more like neon and colorful and crazy and you can just go in zoom in and see all of this different art that was created over 13 and a half years you know okay here's what I think is interesting is that you know, we're sitting here being like, whoa, 13 and a half years, which is pretty remarkable. But like, in my mind, the great artists of the past who would do like massive pieces the size of a wall, like, or Michelangelo doing a, a marble sculpture. Yeah. Like that would take years and years and years. And part of, part of the reason that that like those pieces have value or that we see them as like so important is because of the masterful, you know, art form over a long period of time. And it's just interesting that this is, this is our version of that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I know that a modern artist could take as long or as little as they want on a piece of art, but I feel like we don't, you know, we have a tendency towards instant gratification and quick, fast, fast, you know? And so the fact that this is our version of taking a long time on something, um, not that it's the only version, but like, there's something about this that because we are really valuing the, the daily long form version of this like that's part of what's giving this value I'm just my brain is connecting those pieces definitely and I think that that there is something there for sure that uh a lot of great works of the past and great artists of the past have spent a lot of time on their works years and years and years what I think is unique about a piece like this is that it's representing the passage of the time mm -hmm. that was happening because these are daily installments over 13 and a half years as opposed to painting, you know, the Sistine Chapel, it was always going to be the Sistine Chapel and the vision didn't really change that much. Or there is an evidence of the 13 years other than just the intricacy of the piece. Personally, I feel like I have more respect for, let's say the Sistine Chapel than this piece of art. And that's my own personal opinion. Um, just because I feel like I could journal every day and then release a book of it after 13 years. And like, that's not that important. And I'm not saying like, I do think that this is really powerful and very cool. And I do agree that the passage of time and being able to see how things have progressed is interesting. But I think that my personal opinion is that um, working on a unified piece for so long, I, I have more admiration for. Yeah, I, I don't think that one is more or less valuable than the other personally like um I wouldn't want to compare them because they're so different but I also think like it's important to point out that this project started in 2007 when digital art wasn't even really thought of or considered a true art form and I think that like that's also another reason why this was valued so highly monetarily is that it it's so um early in the progression of digital art mm -hmm. you know it's like if if we could see a painting of when painting was invented you know what I mean and like when painting was being created if we could see that evidenced in a painting like that would be really cool well something else that I'm struck by when I see it is that yes it is an account of 13 and a half years and they are individual pieces but 
I would argue that there is unity in this, which is really cool. Like I didn't expect, like Liesl, when you said we have 5,000 things to look at, I had, I didn't expect it to look so thematic and organized and whether that was intentional or not on the artist's part. Gee, I do think this was unified. And yes, I can understand where you're coming from that like the Sistine Chapel is one unified project and that gives it value. But I do think this, even though it was released day by day, has lots of unity and that's what makes it so valuable both monetarily and artistically. I also just think, um, I think the grid's kind of ugly, personally. Um, and like, I'm not trying to poo-poo on this because I do really think it's cool. And like, you know, I, I agree completely that it is, um, there, it, there's a novelty to it that we have to acknowledge. Um, but it also like, I don't know. And maybe this is just like me, I don't know how to describe what I'm trying to say, but it's like a little cringy. Um, I, I can understand that. And I think that like there were some parallels to an Instagram grid, which I did find a little bit cringy. Um, so I, I, I kind of feel like I do understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I personally don't think that it's ugly. I actually think it's, it's very visually cool to look at and see, but this is the beauty of art. Exactly. And I think that like the subjectivity of art is what makes art art. I can definitely agree that I think the grid is ugly. Like when I saw it <laughs> in my head, I thought, oh, was that made on pick frame? Like, did someone go in and like <laughs> screenshot all of them and then like put them in? Which I guess, Liesl, would be my final question to you if you know this. When he started this project many years ago, did he have the intention of making it into one piece of art? Or I don't is this think so. just. Okay, and does he want to continue to like produce art every day or was this the culmination into this pick frame grid that I agree is ugly? Well, I think it's united. I think it just looks kind of like I could have done it. Not the graphic design part. I totally <laughs> respect that. And I don't want to shit on that at all. But like, I think that I could have screenshotted them all and put them in a grid myself. Well, that's also part of my question is like, how did um, Winkleman want... His name is Beeple. Sorry, sorry, Beeple. <laughs> <laughs> How did Beeple, like, like in the digital distribution of this piece of art, I, I want there to be like top-notch graphical user interface to be able to interact with these pieces. I think that there is. That's what I, that's what I would, that, that would really put it over the edge for me. No, yeah, I think, I think that it's very usable as far as when you get but how do I access that how do I get it's, to experience it's it? right here something I do want to point out about the grid is that it is not a perfectly matched up you know all squares it is like an intricately placed together grid of different size artworks and pieces that like form a like Jenga puzzle. So it's not like a grid with straight lines, like a piece of graph paper. It's a very complicated um, assembled grid, if that makes sense. And I think that that makes the grid more interesting and more cool um, and more visually pleasing to me personally. But okay, this piece- for the close up. Yes, this piece, and, and I, I, I agree with that, Liesl. I think it is much cooler to much look cooler. at when you see that. Yes, and I, I would highly recommend, like, look it up. It's called Every Day is the First 5,000 Days, and I think that there are more days, given that this piece of art is called the First 5,000 Days. That would imply <laughs> that there may be more. Okay, I take it back. I do think it looks really wonderful. It doesn't look like a pick frame thing I could have done myself. It is a work of art and that takes a lot of skill. And I think that seeing the close up makes me respect it the most. Um, my final question is when said purchaser of the $69,000 piece of art 69 million. purchased the art. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. I cannot believe I um, put that number <laughs> to shame, 69 million. Um, did they then receive an email with the document like, or like they just 
it's just the owning rights. It's not, and then like searching rights and like being able to say, hey, I own that. I can look it up, but not like, do you get it in, I don't, how does it work? Well, that's, that's why the blockchain um, encrypted password and, and chain of ownership is what they got. Like they got the, the digital, you know, virtual universal contract of ownership and access, you know, to the art, but they didn't like get an email, you know, with, with the link to the art, they got this blockchain non-fungible token that they now own and possess. But as we've been saying that anyone can access. So their viewing of this piece is no different than my viewing of this piece. That's what I believe. That's what I believe is the case. Um, Maybe, you know, they- Maybe they have access to the top-notch graphical user interface. Well, and that's the thing. The the people who were poo-pooing on this and saying like, this isn't real blockchain, like this isn't real crypto, whatever. They were saying like, this is just like a glorified JPEG that they like sent, which I feel like is really um, kind of rude to just be like, <laughs> it's just a JPEG. Like, because there really is a lot more that went into this, in my opinion. I just also like, don't understand money. That's not money. Right. Because they also, part, part of the payment for the piece of art was, um, cryptocurrency. So not only was it paid for in us dollars to some degree, some of that 69 million was paid for in cryptocurrency. And um, I am showing for our YouTube audience a little bit more of the art, but I highly recommend that if you have not seen it, you check out Beeple's Every Day's The First 5,000 Days. So to segue into something else I wanted to bring up, which we've already sort of begun to touch on, is about what gives art value. And, you know, just the idea that like, We've all walked into a museum, seen something that looks like it was done by a kindergartner, Mm -hmm. and you learn that it's, you know, millions of dollars and it's by this famous artist. And, you know, how much of art and its value is about what's visible, how much of it is about the context, how much of it is about the artist, the creator, you know, and, and why is it that, like, some art is worth far more than other pieces of art. And, you know, even someone like Banksy, right, who does all kinds of experimental stuff, you know, he's someone who I think is a, is a prime example of like, just because he makes it, people are ears and eyes open. Yeah. I, I think of art in a very similar way to how I often think about fashion. Um, And I do think that both art and fashion can be very elitist. And I think that it comes, it comes down oftentimes to the, if you know, you know, phrase where it's like, if you see a piece of art and you have the knowledge and background information that gives that art value, you're going to look at that piece and think something so different than someone who just has no idea. Like for example, with Jeff Koons, famous artist who does these like balloon, you know, sculpture looking things. Before I knew who Jeff Koons was, like I was just like, what the fuck is that silly ass, you know, balloon animal doing in this um, hotel lobby or whatever. Um, But then when you learn who Jeff Koons is and you know that he's a very famous contemporary artist and that these sculptures have whatever meaning or value, whenever I see a Jeff Koons now, it triggers in my mind like, oh, elite artist like contemporary whatever form of art and it 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 triggers a look back into uh like a societal understanding I just also think of Jeff Koons as so like millennial right I agree and I also think like you know another like art then just like how high fashion trickles down you know into other forms like art influences a lot of other areas of life. Like an example that I'm thinking of right now is the artist James Terrell, who was really famous for doing like all of these like light installations. And I know that Drake, the 
rapper became like really interested in all of these James Terrell um, art rooms and like pieces that have all these colorful lights. And then, you know, Drake does the Hotline Bling music video and it has the James Terrell, you know, neon light art installation. And then Drake helps produce the TV show Euphoria which uses all of this neon, you know, lighting. And so it just trickles down and down and down into different levels of, of things that we interact with, you know? But what I don't understand about your comparison to high fashion is that in my mind, high fashion, first of all, like there is um, for the most part, the assumption that it's going to be like of the highest quality mm-hmm. and that like, you know, it visually is saying something and I don't feel like that is necessarily always true about art but I think that some people see fashion runways see someone who's wearing what looks like a sheet you know like there are high fashion runways where people wear something that looks like it could have just been made in literally two seconds just like that that experience of going into a museum and seeing that kindergarten you know art and being like what's the deal here okay but also fashion is on a cycle of, you know, the seasons. And so there is this um, pressure for output all the time. And so like when something in high fashion to me doesn't like immediately register as valuable, I'm like, they, they just have to keep it fresh. Like they just got to keep trying new things and, you know, like making the art. When I see art that's in a museum, I'm like, there's no pressure for that kind of, um mm. That's, that's output and so it's like this should be like the best of the best mm, that is interesting but uh, yeah so mm, I'm not saying that that these are completely equal entities high fashion and art but the the element that I'm trying to signal is just that there is this highbrow you know elitist section of these art forms where you have to have this whole knowledge base and this understanding of the key players of the key trends of you know, the um, craftsmanship, like what it takes to make this art and all of that understanding to understand it at its highest level. Mm-hmm. But all of these things trickle down into different levels of society and we all end up interacting with it and being influenced by it to some extent. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like Beeple is, um, like, I don't feel like Beeple's artwork is necessarily... Um, taking shape in this elitist space right and I think that like that's part of the you know the democratization of art um with digital art you know coming more and more into the fray but at the same time it's like you you have to have a higher understanding of of the art and the artist and the context and all of that to understand it but like with people's digital art um people could see that and start using that for advertising, like that style of art, Mm -hmm. you know? And so different people from all different backgrounds are going to end up being influenced by some degree by that art. So sorry, it's kind of long, but just to get back to kind of what you was saying that I think art at the highest level oftentimes has meaning because a small group of people at the top give it meaning, you know? And like, Uh, people who have time to like be art connoisseurs and like go to museums all the time and fund museums and and be at that high level like they control it but at the end of the day like I think that some of the best art ends up having meaning for a lot of people and and affects emotionally a lot of people Uh for whatever reason you Uh know Uh when I walk into a museum and see a plain canvas with a blue dot in the middle and it is regarded as a incredible piece of art to me whether this is right or not I've always just thought of art as a very individualistic thing and so I thought okay this has no value to me I could have drawn this 20 years ago and no one would have given a shit that I did that but this person does but the reason this is in this museum is because, like you were saying, Liesl, but in a slightly different way, some individual liked it. And I just don't have that level of sophistication to understand it. And because I regard art as such an individualistic thing, 
that opinion is just held by someone else and let me walk to the next painting that's going to speak to me. So I guess I've just thought of it in the realm of like beauty is in the eye of the beholder and like when I go in and see something that like really doesn't touch me I'm like okay well it's it's made for someone else and I don't understand this kindergarten style of art but there must be someone out there who like really does and this painting five paintings over I do understand and someone else isn't gonna understand or it's not gonna touch someone in the same way it touches me which I realize is maybe trivializing all of this a bit and reinforcing your point Luzel of elitism and the art connoisseurs at the top which I wholeheartedly agree with but that has always been my perception on the matter. Um, I will work in an anecdote that I have now which was about a museum going experience that I had in Madrid where I was on a tour group and we went to one museum that I'm forgetting the name of but one was like the modern art museum and the other was like the traditional art museum and usually I would say that I prefer the modern art experience just because I don't really love looking at like dark dreary ugly renaissance type shit for like three levels of a massive building but I actually had a far better experience at the traditional art museum or like, I don't know what the technical term is, but you get what I'm saying. Um, because our tour guide, like we had two, two different tour guides for each museum and the traditional art tour guide really gave us like super interesting background stories, like everything about all the different pieces of art that we were seeing in the different artists. And like, it just brought everything to life. It made it so much more interesting. And like getting the explanation made the whole experience for me. And I think that usually my um, like draw to art is more on the visual side as opposed to the context side. Um, and that's why I like modern art better because I think that my eye is drawn towards the the visuals of modern art more so than traditional art um but then when we went to the freaking modern art museum I was so I was bored out of my mind I didn't care about anything I wasn't like really blown away by anything that was in there and I was just like again a little bit like feeling feelings of cringe like okay you put like you made a life-size like metronome like okay yeah. <laughs> you know like and I get that, that they're trying to say stuff like I get that there is more to it than just trying to be like quirky um but I don't know I I just had such a like 180 experience of really enjoying the traditional art um museum experience because we got such a rich explanation of the history and the context um but I just think that it's unfortunate that they're the access to that kind of information is being gatekept gatekept yeah 100 i completely agree Gigi. and when i studied abroad in italy i took an art history class that we would just like meet up at a different museum every single week and our art history teacher would do exactly what you were saying like just take us around to all the different paintings and tell us the story and tell us like fun facts and point out interesting details and like when that happens and you get that experience of viewing, you know, really like older art and getting like those stories behind it. It is one of the it's most fascinating. It's one of the most fascinating things. It's storytelling with a visual artifact, like in front of your eyes. Like it's so cool. And like for me taking an art history class about the Renaissance, you know, type time uh, artwork, it gives you a language when you have viewed enough of that art and heard enough of that stories heard enough of the stories behind the art it gives you a little bit of a uh an ability to then if you see a new piece of art that you don't know the story behind because you've seen similar ones you can start to piece together the story of that piece that's in front of you and so I've always found it crazy that like most art history classes the way that it works is like you study this entire like huge amount of of artworks and then the exam, they'll show you, you know, pictures of 10 different artworks out of a random sample of like a thousand. And you have to say the artist, the year, the subject matter, the title, and like a description. 
And that always blew my mind, but it makes a lot of sense because the more of a collection of understanding that you have of more art, like the more that you can see a novel piece in front of you and have like a better understanding of what's going on, place the time, like figure out who the artist is based on all of these clues. And it becomes like detective work, which I feel like is actually really cool and fun. But as you're saying, Gigi, like that, that detective work, you have to have had time to like study all of these pieces and have all of this prior knowledge that most people just don't have. Which I have a huge aversion to. Um, the fact that it's gatekept? Yeah. Yeah. And like high fashion art, the elitism that comes with it, uh, it makes me, like, it makes me really upset actually. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say was museum going, art museum going specifically is something that I have always kind of struggled with because to be completely honest, I have not enjoyed it for majority of my life. And I always feel like when I'm at an art museum, I'm supposed to be loving it and getting such a cultural experience but most of the time I'm like I'm so bored I don't care I don't get it and there have been a select very few number of times where I actually have felt like it was an enriching cool experience and just like you guys are saying it is with that context but in general it's really boring for me to go to art museums and to appreciate it in the way that I should and I feel like a lot of guilt with that of like this is this cool thing that I'm supposed to be loving but like this is fucking boring to stare at a wall and have no idea what I'm looking at and I want to be liking this and when I was abroad we did lots of museum going and I just like had this internal struggle of like, okay, I should do this, so I'm gonna go. But while I'm there, I'm literally not enjoying myself at all. Yeah, Lil, I agree completely. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily experience it as guilt, but like a discomfort with feeling that there is this expectation of the experience versus my reality of the experience, where I'm like, this isn't doing anything for me. I'm not feeling anything. I'm not thinking anything, sorry. And knowing that like, there are plenty of people that care enough about this to put it in a museum. And I'm like, sorry, I'm not, I'm not there. Yes. Um, all right, well with that, I would love to introduce my topic for this episode, which is the way that copying takes place in art. And I mean this um, beyond just physical art that you see in a museum like paintings and drawings and whatever but also with music where we see sampling and we see covers and then in traditional art with painting styles or artistic styles more generally and I just think it's interesting to consider the line in which copying is a form of flattery in art, the line in which copying is absolutely unacceptable in art. And just to bring it back a little bit, just where we tolerate copying in art and where we absolutely do not tolerate it in art. Because personally, I have no idea, but it's something that I feel like I see whenever I'm expanding my artistic brain. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting because from my art history class, I feel like I learned a lot about the fact that, especially in the Renaissance, there was this like return to an interest in paintings about biblical stories. And there's only so much of the Bible to go around, you know, like there's only so many stories that happen in the Bible. So you end up with a lot of art pieces that are of the same moment. Like, for example, the Annunciation is the moment that like, the angel Gabriel comes down to the Virgin Mary and says like, hey, knock, knock, you're pregnant. Um, <laughs> and so there's like this, it's, it's, a, it's a famous, you know, representation. And so like all of the different famous artists from a huge chunk of art history, they were all painting the same thing and doing their own spin on it which I actually think is really cool and fun to see, like to see the same moment happening through the lens of so many different artists over like a huge period of time is actually like a really cool moment of repetition or copying or like a pattern in art that brings like a lot of value. And so I think that sometimes 
taking something and quote unquote copying it or, or putting your own spin on it and having like that reference point, that context, like we're talking, we've been talking about with art that, that can color the art so much and bring like a whole new intrigue and interest. Um, but obviously that then blurs the lines of like plagiarism and, you know, having something unique in your own art, where, where do you draw the line where it becomes copying and where it's like honoring? I was trying to find a quote, but I don't know exactly what it is or where it's from, but I know I've heard something along this, these lines many times throughout my education, which is like, there's no such thing as original work. Um, and I believe that 100%. So like when it comes to quote unquote copying, I don't even really subscribe to that as like the way that it functions in terms of creation of art, of literature, of whatever, like everything is informed by something else. And like whatever discourse is occurring um, and that can extend to artwork. It doesn't have to just be like, you know, words um, is the product of the previous discourse or the pre-existing discourse it's a it's a response and it's a like I just think that like there's no such thing as original work (laughs) and so when when I think I think that sets people free you know like when when you uh, accept that into your heart you're set free to then just create and, and, and to, to take inspiration from that has that, which has come before you. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I, I think then I'm so focused on this blurred line and where to draw the line of where it is plagiarism, where it is true copying, but gee, I like that, that like eliminate that altogether because that just doesn't exist. Yeah, but I, I think it's it's also interesting, like, when we think about art, like, famous pieces of artwork, like a Jeff Koons, you know, balloon sculpture, not to talk about my boy too much, um, but that's something that is very easily replicated and then sold as the real thing sometimes, you know, which is a very tricky, tricky territory with art, you know, like when art can be easily replicated to a degree that it seems real enough. When something is so easily replicated, you know, in the art world, like it can be copied and then uh, profited off of, which is really sad and like unethical and and is just such an unfortunate consequence of art, but not to go back to Beeple too much, but like his digital art, because everyone already has it, there's no copying, you know, which is kind of an interesting unlock. And no stealing. And no stealing. Because the idea of art stealing is huge. Is huge. But yeah, um, like I, I do think that the the digital digital art space is a cool way to um, kind of eliminate this idea of copying and plagiarism in art. The only thing is that like, you know, I really, you know, as much as I've spoken on the museum experience in both positive and negative light like I think that it would be a a shame if we lost the um, physical experience of art at some point in the future like I don't think that art belongs solely in the digital space and I don't think that anytime in our lifetime museums will go away especially because there's so many um, experiential and interactive art pieces. Oh, you know, this actually, this brings me to, to something I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Um, I also took a class in New York where we visited different museums and I definitely had some very interesting experiences. One of which um, was an art piece called Inside the Birth Canal, um, oh. in which you enter a dark room with some very interesting music playing and a scent being pumped into the space that is meant to mimic going through the birth canal. And then you enter a new room that is like being birthed. And that was a very interesting experience for me to have, but that's something that, you know, you couldn't have in the digital world. So this is reminding me of a piece of art that I wanted to bring up, which unfortunately I don't remember the name of the artist, um, but I remember reading about it. little while back that basically this artist had created um, 
what I believe is called augmented reality, mm-hmm. where you get like maybe this app on your phone or something and you are, I believe it's meant for Times Square in New York City. You point your phone up at the sky and it is meant to like around the pre-existing skyscrapers or whatever that you're seeing, you're seeing an underwater seascape with boats floating above you to signify the um, global under, climate change, the underwater fate of New York City in a hundred years time. Right, and so this brings me to my point of art for um, social change mm-hmm. and art for to make statements. Yes. And that is at the end of the day, like what art usually is trying to do is like make a statement. And in my opinion, something that we always should come back to when looking at art is how effective is the statement that this art is making? You know, like in my opinion, like Lily was saying, when you go into an art museum and there's a blank canvas that has a blue dot on it, how effective is that going to be on level one, just seeing it? And on level two, having, you know, whatever context is written next to the piece, you know, if, if the blue dot represents, you know, climate change in some way, shape or form that, that is effective. And that impacts me in some way, like that would impact you, you know, that's an effective piece of art, in my opinion. And not that all art has to be, you know, this super like effective, you know, amazing, like streamlined experience. But it's like, in my opinion, what really brings a lot of value and meaning to art is if it can effectively communicate its message in an impactful way. Totally. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that art is a great vessel for social change, you know? Yeah. Well, I would say, I think where I stand on that is it definitely has the ability to um, spread awareness and to bring, um, you know, conversations to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's a, an honorable um, aim of artwork, but at the same time, like change comes from action. Right. And if the art can spark action, fantastic. But that is somewhat reliant on there being an effective message being communicated. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I feel like we should head into our recommendations for this episode. We have a submission. <laughs> From none other than Eric Curtis Foster, a past guest on the show. And our cousin. Our cousin. Um, he is recommending a song called Peaches by an artist called Justin Bieber. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Justin Bieber's whole new album. That's a general recommendation from me. I've been really on my Justin Bieber grind recently. Shout out to all my roommates who have inspired that um and the whole album I would like to recommend oh actually I do have a recommendation I mean first of all I just want to say it's only fitting that like the ultimate artist would be our recommendation Justin thank you for the art that you've created and will continue to create all right well with that I would like to thank each and every one of you for listening to sophomore citizens the podcast by young people for young people with new episodes every Monday so we'll see you wise babies then But until we see you next, you could and you definitely should follow us on Instagram, TikTok, send us an email, sophomorecitizens at gmail.com. And you can most definitely leave us a five-star review.